to begin by asking you a handful of leading questions. What a great way to start, hey? Get you thinking on your toes. Get you listening. Can I encourage you right now, like we've been doing in our worship, can I encourage you first just to begin focusing and thinking about the person of Jesus? As you consider Jesus, I I want you just to be thinking, what's one word that comes to your mind immediately that you think defines him? And then there's no right or wrong answers here, guys. I just want to say. Anybody want to share just one word that comes to your mind when you think about Jesus? Beautiful. Savior. Kind. Did I hear that, Marcus? Love. Hope. Provider. Gentle. Brother. Lover. Joy. Peace. Ooh. <laughs> so long suffering. I'm not going to ask you why. see her. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> what? One who saves. Okay, that's, you could make that into one word. That works. Friend. Unpredictable. <laughs> Shout it out. Truth. Sure. You know, it's funny, you use the word truth, and immediately my mind uh, goes to Pontius Pilate with Jesus, right? And they're having this brave discussion. Well, what is truth anyways? And Jesus is just silent before him. That's not, you know, that, that question and the answer that was so obvious standing in front of him that he couldn't see Truth. Well, when you think of him, do you think of him as someone who was sent? I heard something. Do you? Is it a trick question? (laughs) I promise this is going somewhere, okay, you guys? Oh, I'm giving you all the, all the questions I don't want you answering yet. I don't know why I'm pointing at that. I should be pointing at that, right? Do you ask questions like, where did he come from? Could you imagine Jesus showing up on the scene as he did? Oh, you've been reading the notes. <laughs> yeah, you get a... Um, And if he was sent, who sent him? I mean, these are are questions, right? 
Can you imagine this guy? He shows up on the scene. And then he's come, but somebody sent him. Why was he sent? Here, do you want to come up and preach this? Come on. That's good. Michael, you're awesome, buddy. See, like so many of our hidden pursuits of God, do you know that you have pursuits of God that are hidden? Do you ever think about that? Do you share everything about what's going on in your, your thought life and your patterns with people around you? Even, you know, your spouse? Hello, are you listening? Yes, no, I... Like, do we? Like, if we're all honest, we have these, like, hidden places, these, this hidden place, I believe, that where we pursue God. And sometimes we catch ourselves saying things that we actually don't believe, right? Early in John's gospel, we find a stirring account of a, of a Jewish religious leader who had sought out Jesus under the cover of night. Such a great story. And listen, John dedicates a chunk of his gospel in different sections to this guy, to this religious leader. See, Jesus was the hottest topic in Nicodemus' political and religious circles. And he was the focus, Jesus was the focus of backroom debates and temple side conversations, and especially, especially amongst the religious leaders in their region. Who was this man? And what was it that drew so many to him? And, and where did he come from anyways? And from nowhere comes a man teaching with an authority like no one's ever known. Reminiscent maybe of John the baptizer who had proclaimed Messiah's coming and was warning everybody to repent, to turn around, to get their hearts right because the Messiah, the King is coming. He's coming. And then his, his voice grew quiet. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, it, it was shut down, wasn't it? He decreased so that Jesus could increase. There appeared to be like no religious leader that Jesus heralded from, like there was no known rabbi that had raised up this, this man. And yet his unfolding of scripture, his intimate knowledge of God, like he spoke about him so intimately, it was like an, unlike anything that they'd ever seen or heard or witnessed before. And then he commanded a power to perform the miracles that could only be attributable to God himself. Jesus, they surmised, was sent by God to teach them. But it really didn't answer where he came from or who he really was or even maybe why he was here. 
All they knew is that they were attracted to him. Can you remember in the days in your life before you had said yes to him and invited him, do you remember being attracted to him? Hearing things about him and reading about him? I do. I read about him for years. In fact, I, I had one of his books. It's called the Bible. I had one of his books. Yeah, it was given to me by my grandmother when I was 13. Gideon's gave me one when I was a little younger than that. I remember opening those pages. I remember being attracted to them. Reading here out of John chapter three, verses 13 through 17. Jesus is in the middle of his conversation with Nicodemus. He says, no one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the son of man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Does that sound like good news? It's good news if you know you need saving. It's maybe not so good news if you've got it all figured out and you don't want any saving in particular because you don't want anything to change. If you haven't already figured out where we're headed with today's message, then let me enlighten you. Oh, yes, please. Point it the right way. For some reason, I think it's that way. This is a theme for us. This theme here. For me, it's, it's a bit of a, a word, a phrase where I, I want to hang our hat. And when I thought about our message here this afternoon, I was thinking, well, this is, it's, a, it's, a, it's a new premise. It's a new area. Uh, maybe there's some new folks among us. We haven't hung out like this for a little while, guys. And it's important to tell the story not once, but to tell it again and to keep telling it. John Wimber, we used to say, don't forget your testimonies, don't forget the stories, keep telling them. And then when you're done telling them, tell them again. Keep reminding yourself. This idea, this thought that our Father's love changes everything is something that I believe we're supposed to not only hang our hat on, but hang our lives on and hang on to, to be ministered by and to minister to others. Jesus ministered with power, but it, it wasn't just so that he could prove his claims about himself. I remember early on in my years as a Christian is, is that that's how we kind of treated all these things, that it was a sort of matter of fact presentation 
about Jesus. And in fact, the very scriptures that I read to you earlier, those were some of the same scriptures that were passed on to me when I got that that book of the four spiritual laws. Do you remember that one? (laughs) All the things that, you know, I was... I was taking it all in like it was information to be processed. But there's so much more to that word that Jesus is exposing us to and inviting us into. You see, Jesus didn't come just to prove who he was, but he came to reveal the love of Father God for us. The more important than the, than the checkout stub that I take at the end of it all and say, I, you know, my eternity is guaranteed in heaven and I've got that checked off. I can move on to the next thing. <laughs> God is saying that he loves us through his son. Our father's love has been made real for us. It's his manifest power and truth that It promises to bring a lasting change and changes into your life and into everything. And in fact, the word of God says here, it didn't just come to change me, but he came to change circumstances in our entire world. But he does that like one life at a time. And yours and yours and all of our lives. His is a love that comes to save. Not just for the hereafter, but for here and now. To heal, to bring healing and deliverance for us and reconciliation to him and to people around us. Even when we don't want it. All these things are deeply rooted and it's broken Effects are the result of sin and unbelief. You know that one of our great sins is that we didn't believe. I used to be one of those who didn't believe. I love what the Elijah House training is is said to my sweetheart here who's been deeply immersed in its studies of late. Often the Teachers of Eliza House now, I've heard them on more than one occasion talk about the ministry of healing and deliverance and all that God brings into our life. And their reference to that has nothing to say that is, you know, you're either saved or not saved. It's, that's not their reference. The reference to that is they, they are suggestive to us that God continues to come and evangelize areas in our life that are still bound up in unbelief that God wants to come and bring his healing into. You see, you know, he is better than you think. He's changing that. He's renewing that in our mind. If you think he is awesome now, you wait till he is like really done with you. You think he's good now? He is just going to keep proving himself good to you. The bronze snake of Jesus' account It's a direct reference to the immobilizing effect of evil in the world and its influence in us. Affecting how we see one another, how we see God, how we we see ourselves. 
the world and we as people have had a problem since after creation that only God himself is able to redeem. Because I, see, part of the redeeming is getting God back into the center of our lives and our hearts. The thing that we were always intended for, this deeply relational and heartfelt connection and work with him. From seemingly nowhere, Jesus, in his conversation with Nicodemus, he reaches back, right, doesn't he? He reaches back into a, an incident in Israel's history to distill the heart of our problem and to reveal his solution. During their wandering in the wilderness, the Israelites were grumbling. <laughs> no, not God's people, not grumbling. No, they were grumbling with Moses, the leader that was appointed by God to act as their mediator and deliverer. They were grumbling against Moses and poisonous snakes were sent and I believe drawn into their encampment, killing many of them. That's a pretty serious effect. Now God gave Moses a remedy for their oppression. He said, fashion a serpent out of bronze. Put it on a pole and hold it up for all of the people to look at it. Anyone who fixes their eyes on the bronze serpent will live. Now, it's not that the bronze serpent itself saved anyone. If you read ahead in, in some of the Old Testament accounts, you'll find out that the people of God actually found that bronze snake and decided to worship it, thinking it was going to give them power. That didn't go so well. Eventually, it had to be ground up and destroyed because the people wouldn't stop worshiping it. The bronze snake in itself doesn't save anyone, but it is and was a the saving power of God himself that saved God's people. The symbol of the serpent was simply and powerfully pointing towards God who saves. And, on fa and in fact, on what Jesus is gonna come and he's gonna do. And in our case, he has done. The bronze serpent clearly clearly points to the death of Jesus on the cross. Just like Moses put the serpent on a pole and lifted it up for all to see, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who looks to him and believes in him will be saved. That's from Jesus himself. That's pretty good. I, I think you could take that one to the bank. Humanity has been smitten with a deadly and unbelieving disease. And our only cure is to look upon the love of God that is revealed through his son. Dying on a cross of suffering that men have constructed. 
who's been lifted up for everyone to see and through all of the ages. Probably the most offensive crime ever committed throughout humanity and against God himself was the brutal torture and the crucifixion of his son. Jesus knows suffering. Jesus knows rejection. God's answer and the remedy for our condition was to demonstrate his love by forgiving anyone who looks to his son and believes in him. Isn't that really that simple? Yeah. But keep looking to him. See, the people of the Old Testament, when Moses fashioned that bronze serpent, had something to do, didn't they? What were they being asked to do? It's not a trick question. Just look. Go to the bronze serpent and just look upon it. We all have something to do, and that something is to look on Jesus, to fix our eyes on him. The author, the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. Just look to him. Lift him up. It was on that cross on Golgotha and in the, in the height of the Passover celebration that the crucified Lamb of God was raised up. And with his blood pouring out from his torn and broken body and with his life breath all but exhausted and utterly stripped from him, the king of the Jews looked down on all the religious onlookers who mocked him. And even on the foreign soldiers who had brutally tortured him. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's his response. It wasn't to retaliate or to act back in violence or to lash out or to call legions of angels down to do his bidding because he could have done it. But he chose not to. Even after the world had done her worst to the Lord, his, his sovereign act is to reach out and to proclaim God's love and his forgiveness over the people. That's what he does. Turning back to today's primary text, he said it, didn't he? God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. I've got a question for you. If this is how God has chosen to display, to display his love through his son, how do you see Jesus sending us? What's that? Same way. 
fact, he encourages us to take up our own cross, doesn't he? And to follow him. Daily. <laughs> Daily. You know that that takes amazing freedom to live and walk like that? But that's actually your birthright. That's what God wants for you. That is a picture of absolute freedom. To respond in love. And to freely respond, not because you have to, but because you can. You get to. You get to live like this. Almost four weeks previous, Debbie and I, we joined the rest of our BC regional team to welcome pastors from all across our province to the Penticton Vineyard. Some of you might have seen a couple of those live streamed gatherings, and I'm actually going to refer to one of those characters from that live streamed gathering. I'm going to say, admittedly, our, our agenda was full. In hindsight, we looked at it and it was like way too full. And I probably only have ourselves to blame for that. Do you ever do that? Like fill out what you're going to get done in a day and, <laughs> and then have a reality check about three quarters of the way through the day going, what was I thinking? But we just felt that like we had so much that needed to be done and it had been so long since we'd gathered as a group and we realized that the time that we had and the space that we had, the place that we had together was really important. We had a full agenda and we'd not seen one another for an entire year. It, it felt absolutely necessary to speak and to minister to a handful of burning needs that were impressing themselves upon all of us. Weary. There was weariness. <laughs> From an abnormal pressure that comes in our pastoral life and in this season, especially in this season, there's a sense of feeling challenged by a world that's demanding its place on the stage. You're hearing it in the news. Well, guess what, guys? It's, it's knocking on the doors of the church. Demanding its place on the stage. And we were generally thirsty for something real. I feel a song coming up. <laughs> and we were hungry for some real sort of life-on-life -life relational connection with one another as safely as we could. Some of us masked, most of us unmasked. Mostly COVID distanced from one another. The worship was marked with intimacy and with praise and with lament. Isn't that what we all want to do? Go to a worship service and lament for a while? It's, you know what? It's scriptural. It's necessary. But not all the time. It was real. It was vulnerable. And both of us left feeling 
filled up, didn't we? Mostly. <laughs> Little spent. See, in our movement, the faces of our pastors and leaders are changing from the days that Debbie and I first grew accustomed to the vineyard here in BC. They include new and emerging young leaders. They include women and men alike. And some women with some amazing, amazing teacher, preacher gifts, like full on. Couples coming in to share ministries where the woman is actually taking the lead as the lead preacher and they can bring it. It's fun. They include people of color. And they include people of a diverse history and cultural experience. But you have to get to know one another. We saw new relationships being formed amongst our little tribe. And I've got to say, our time together was meaningful. This guy, <laughs> dressed for the occasion. Mount Vanderspew, he and his wife are the pastors of the Yellowknife Vineyard Church. They answered the call to uproot themselves from their lifelong ties to South Africa. Yeah, and come and pastor this congregation in the Northwest Territories. You're laughing. Why are you laughing? Come on. Yeah. Yeah, I actually had to go. I had to point that out as well. I couldn't keep myself from laughing. Like the highest recorded temperatures in South Africa in areas that he would have known is like 50 degrees. The lowest recorded temperatures in Yellowknife are still settling in at minus 51.2. So that's at about 100 degrees of difference. Hello. In our connection, I couldn't help but point to that and laughed. And he said that it's a difference that they're still honestly trying to adjust to after some years, still. During that afternoon, we always slid into a booth next to Melton where we learned in more detail about his generation's deep history as an Afrikaner. How many know what an Afrikaner is? a person from Africa, specifically with Dutch heritage roots who started settling in there in, in the, as early as the 1700s, right? And he is a big Dutchman. I mean, Afrikaner. Mel couldn't actually have been more traditionally raised in influence than under the rule of apartheid. Do you know what the word apartheid actually means and where it comes from? It's, an, it's actually an Afrikaner word. It literally means apartness in Afrikaner lingo. It's a system of legislation that was upheld and segregationist policies against non-white citizens of South Africa and after the National Party gained power in South Africa in 1948, 
its all-white government immediately began enforcing existing policies of racial segregation. We gasp at that now, but that's not that far back, guys. Their goal was not only to separate South Africa's white minority from its non-white majority, but it was actually to even bring separation amongst whites from whites and to divide the black South Africans along tribal lines in order to decrease their political threat and power. It was systematic. Mel was a a strong, young, unsaved Africano who simply didn't know anything different than what he was raised in, though. It's what he knew. And as a young man, he was mandated to serve in the nation's army. Part of that service meant physically going into the hot spots of his nation to shut down political uprising and community violence amongst the black segregated populations. And so much of Mel's story really, even as coming to faith, is a, it's, it, it reads more like a slow kingdom coming. First, it was his resistance to the message of Christ. But of course, Jesus was already at work in his wife and eventually it was knocking on his door. And then came a growing awareness of the indifferences suffered under apartheid that saw he and his wife naturally loving and assuming their role as parents to five children, two of whom are black African children, to women who had lived and worked for them in their home. The changes for Mel didn't come about because of some crazy Damascus Road experience. At least that didn't come up in his testimony. But but upon finally relinquishing himself to the good news of God's love and to his son Jesus, he began his inevitable journey toward a non-judgmental love and a way of doing life. And it was a love that cost. It was a love that saw them adopting these two children of their own who are now Felicia's 28 and Anel is 23. These are just two of the children that God used to help shape his life. So many things shared, so many defining moments in Melt's testimony, but of the things he shared, and you, if you caught the testimony, you would have heard it. It's a story that played out some years later when Melt was serving in a ministry that he f- found himself as a maturing Christian man sitting amongst a gathering of black pastors and leaders in a community that he'd not seen in some years. He'd been asked to speak. He confessed to feeling conflicted about the message that he could bring or should even bring. And when he stood up to address the crowd, Mel came with a heavy heart. He came up in repentance and he opened his address with a confession the gist of what he had to say to the leaders, the last time I stood among you, I was a young man bearing an R4 assault rifle. And I was assigned here by the government to put down the uprising and to enforce apartheid rule. 
overwhelmed with obvious emotion. That's a good thing. <laughs> Hardly able to find his word, his black leaders rose up to strengthen him and to welcome him in as one of their own. Brother. That's how they referred to him. They didn't meet melt with anger or with judgment. But they rose up and they embraced him in the love and the power of our Father God, the God that they knew, who knew their suffering, but who had seen them through. Our Father's love is the same love and embrace that greets us every time we look towards his Son who came not to judge us, but to save us. I want to finish with a passage from Eugene Peterson's message translation. It's a, it's a passage that many of you are probably familiar with, but maybe written in a way that you've not heard before. It's, it's taken out of Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6. 700 years, anyways, before Jesus' coming, the prophet Isaiah wrote this, maybe not quite like this. It was in Hebrew, obviously. <laughs> maybe not quite translated like this, but listen to it. The essence of it just, well, it grabbed me. Isaiah 53, verse three, we looked down on him, thought he was scum. But in fact, it was our pain that he carried our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was for our sins. It was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. He took the punishment and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we were healed. We, all of us, like sheep, who've wandered off and gotten lost, we've all done our own thing. We've all gone our own way. And God has piled all of our sins, everything we've done, on Him. On Him. God is sent his son so that we might look on him and we might believe in him and be saved. <laughs>